This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with journalist and author Louisa Lim. Louisa joined me to discuss her new book, Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. Louisa talks about the 2019 protest movement in Hong Kong, as well as key historical events, such as the joint declaration negotiations when Great Britain sought to return Hong Kong to China. Louisa talks about being raised in Hong Kong as a mixed-race child, half Chinese and half English, and she also talks about life as a journalist in Hong Kong, exploring issues of press freedom in the context of the very harsh national security law. Ultimately, Louisa seeks to reinsert Hong Kongers into their own political and social history. And it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on to the show Louisa Lim, who is a journalist and an author and also a lecturer at the University of Melbourne. Louisa is the author of a previous book called The People's Republic of Amnesia, Tiananmen Revisited, which was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize and the Helen Bernstein Book Award for Excellence in Journalism. She's also in her past covered both China and Hong Kong for over a decade as a correspondent for the BBC, NPR, and she's also reported for a range of news outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post and The Guardian. And very relevant for our conversation is that Louisa Lim was raised in Hong Kong. She's currently living in Australia, though, as you will read in her new book, um, she certainly has lived in both countries for a very long time and back and forth as well, obviously disrupted by the pandemic. But today we're going to be talking to Louisa Lim about a new book that she's written, Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong, which pretty much speaks for itself. And I also should mention Louisa is co-host of a fabulous podcast, called The Little Red Podcast, which I also recommend. And I welcome Louisa now. Hi there. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show. And uh, I've always really loved your previous work. So I'm glad to be able to delve into your new book. I wanted to first ask uh, more of a methodological question, because you do talk about all the research that you've done throughout the book, um, looking at a whole range of very important figures and also some primary source material that it appears hasn't been used before. So I wondered, what was the process of even putting together this book, doing the interviews, doing the research? How long a project was this for you? Oh, it was a much longer project than it was meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, when I started working on it, I thought, oh, wait, you know, a really nice quick book. And you know how these things are, these projects kind of balloon out of control. And I started that eight years ago. So it's take, taken me eight full years. And I, part of it was the amount of research that I ended up doing. You know, it wasn't the nice simple book that I wanted to write. It just kind of kept growing and growing. Part of it was just how Hong Kong's situation changed over that time. When I started writing it, it was actually even before the Umbrella Movement of 2014. And then there was the Umbrella Movement where people occupied the streets for three months, calling for more democracy. Then in 2019, there were massive protests where over two million people at one point took to the streets. And then national security legislation in 2020. So 
it kept changing mm. um, and that sort of changed the finished product. You address that at the beginning of the book, saying that you've had to leave out some names to protect identities given the national security legislation that is in force. And it's been noticeable on my side as an interviewer that I now haven't been interviewing people living in Hong Kong because the risk is so great to them, depending on what they might say, certainly about the political situation. And I wonder if we start from the present point right now, what is the situation in Hong Kong in terms of the ability to have a level of free speech, which clearly did exist, but it's been progressively eroded. And now we are in a very kind of dire situation, it seems. Yeah, it really is a dire situation. So this national security legislation was imposed on Hong Kong, pretty much sight unseen in June 2020. And this outlaws secession, subversion, collusion with foreign powers and terrorism. But these offences are not really defined at all. And the law has been applied really broadly. So um, since it was introduced, I think at least 183 people have been arrested for national security crimes, and a third of those have been um, speech crimes, which is really a category that didn't exist in Hong Kong before. And they can be really obscure things. You know, some people were arrested after having banners or stickers with protest slogans that had been chanted by millions of people all through 2019, but are now seen as not acceptable un under the new legislation. And just a couple of weeks ago, there were six people who were arrested by national security police for clapping in a courtroom, which was seen as a seditious activity, possibly seditious. You know, I think there's just a great deal of fear. Nobody knows where the red lines are anymore. You know, people even talk about a red sea because the red lines are multiplying so fast that they're kind of out of control. And the situation is so dire that actually this week, the Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong canceled its Press Freedom Awards. And it said the reason that it gave was because it said it didn't know whether, you know, this could potentially violate national security legislation. So. You know, I think that's a really tragic sign of just how bad things have got. Yeah, and it makes life really hard for journalists who are still in Hong Kong. We did see the Apple Daily essentially close down, and that was a really shocking moment in the you know, history of the press there. Uh, what is left in terms of the journalists who remain? Well, I mean, there were a lot of really fantastic, aggressive, professional journalists in Hong Kong. But uh, some of the best publications have shut down, you know, Apple Daily, um, Stand News and Citizen News are digital publications and they've all um, shut down. And not only have they shut down, but journalists from Apple Daily and from other publications are being arrested. So a veteran journalist called Alan Au, who actually teaches journalism, was arrested a couple of weeks ago. So there's a great deal of fear among journalists and even after the um, Press Freedom Awards were cancelled, there's a petition going round and I just, I was just looking at it before we spoke and I was really struck by the fact that a lot of people wouldn't sign their actual names to it. It just says, a Hong Kong journalist, a Hong Kong journalist who used to work for Stern News. And, you know, when people are too scared to put their actual names to a petition about press freedom, 
that's really, really uh, su such a tragic situation, and particularly given that Hong Kong has been a society with such a thriving press. In Asia, it's had one of the strongest local press, and, and now that's all sort of being reined in. Yeah, and I remember you were writing in the book about your previous book, The People's Republic of Amnesia, which you were doing very carefully and privately in China, in mainland China, when you were over there and, you know, bringing hard drives across to Hong Kong. So clearly, you know, you're aware of the risks in mainland China, but now that you've written this book, do you feel that there's any risk for you if you were to go back? I mean, at this point, I probably won't go back to Hong Kong unfortunately, partly because of this current book, but also partly because of the last book, we've seen the organisers of the Tiananmen vigil in Hong Kong. So, you know, Hong Kong's the only place on Chinese soil where in the past they've been able to remember Tiananmen and what happened in 1989. And the organisers of that vigil have been arrested. And so at the moment, I, I wouldn't go back to Hong Kong, which is really... You know, it's, re it's really uh, a huge blow for me. But at the same time, not being in Hong Kong does allow me the freedom to write what I want to write and to say what I want to say. And, you know, I think not having to think, am I going to be able to go back or not, really, in a way, it, it does liberate you. So, I've you know, I've written this book, like my last book, you know, I, I wrote it, the consideration of whether I would go back or not was something that I kind of took off the table when I was writing the book. I decided that I would write the books, I will write the books that I want to write regardless of whether that then, you know, stops me from going back to those places. Yeah. And you talk about your identity throughout the book as well, being a Hong Konger and your background, your family background. And I wanted to talk about that because I was really interested in your family's history with Hong Kong as well, which was really interesting, not only your immediate family, like your father and your mother, but even further back and its relationship to the British occupation or colonisation of Hong Kong. Yeah, that's right. I mean, my background is, so my father's Chinese, my mother's English, um, and I grew up in Hong Kong. And actually um, that sort of mixed identity in a way, it's a, it's a privilege, but it's also been really helpful for me in writing a book because in a way I was both outsider and insider to all these worlds. And actually there's a quite a long history of mixed race people in Hong Kong. It, you would think it would be an easy place to be mixed race, but actually it has quite a history of erasure when it comes to mixed race people. So that was interesting to look at. And I, you know, I, I've been lucky because my parents themselves were not really constrained by sort of racial boundaries. You know, the way they they got married and the way they behaved in Hong Kong um, was quite unusual in a way. They really sort of stepped out of the roles expected of them. But yeah, I do have a longer family history with Hong Kong. I mean, my mother's family were soldiers and policemen. They were basically part of the British Imperial project. You know, one of Hong Kong's earlier governors was related quite distantly to me. And you know, when I was growing up, we were always quite proud of that. We had, I never really had bothered to think or look about at what he actually did. 
And, you know, it was only when I started researching the book and I started looking up his history and I saw him being described as the most racist governor in Hong Kong's history. And I found out that he'd had a pony called Yellow Skin and that he had passed legislation that basically um, reserved a certain part of Hong Kong for Europeans, for white skinned people, you know, basically kind of apartheid legislation. And he was really against mixed race children, even attending school with white children, you know, talking about Chinese as semi-civilized savages. And that, you know, it was really shocking to me. Yeah, just how closely my own family had been involved in, you know, not just the colonial project, but some of the worst parts of it. And, you know, going back further still, my mother's relations, you know, were involved in the they were in the expeditionary forces that were involved in um, the second opium war so you know my i mean my family has played a part in the you know not just the colonial administration of hong kong but even very indirectly in its acquisition so so yeah that was all something that i had kind of known but didn't really know that much about until i started to write the book it was really fascinating to read about and also really interesting to me was because your mother is English. So you said it was quite controversial at the time for white women to marry Chinese men. And of course, today it's not as controversial, but it is still quite rare and, and less common than the other way around. It's kind of more common to see white men and Chinese women. And, you know, I wondered about that situation and also when you're talking about being Eurasian, um, and you were talking about Eurasia just before, you say uh, in the book, I think it was Eurasians had cancelled themselves, uh, but also it seems that even Hong Kongers had been, their Cantonese language had kind of been cancelled by Mandarin speakers. So yeah, I wonder if you could pick up any of those threads and, and talk a little bit more about them. Yeah, so my parents had moved to Hong Kong when I was very, very young because they had thought it would be a really good place to raise a mixed race family. And then they got there and they were quite, I think, taken aback to find the level of discrimination. And even when I was young, there was one incident where my mother and I went to a tea shop because it was a really hot day and we were thirsty and we were just sitting at the table drinking tea and there were some old grannies, tiny old ladies sitting on the other side of this big round table and they started throwing tea leaves out of the teapot at me and you know I just couldn't understand it it was so confusing and my mother made me leave which made me really annoyed because I hadn't had my drink or anything and afterwards she said oh they didn't want to see you they didn't want to look at you and I couldn't understand it and I you know then she had to say well you know your appearance offended them because you're not you know you're not Chinese and you're not white either you're mixed and that really stuck with me and when I started looking at that history I discovered that you know that kind of discrimination against mixed race people really went back a long way so although there was intermarriage the children um, other mixed race children you know back in the 19th century they didn't like to identify as mixed race. They would normally pick one way or the other, either live a Chinese life with a Chinese name, wear Chinese clothing, including the pigtail during the Qing dynasty, or lead a more you know, European life. 
there were some exceptions and people who kind of flitted between both, but it was quite unusual to the extent that they introduced into the census this category of Eurasian people and the numbers went up and then they went right down because nobody wanted to even admit to being um, Eurasian. So that was the kind of cancellation that I was talking about. And, you know, growing up in Hong Kong, it did, it was still a factor. And my parents did find they were um, kind of outcasts from both the sort of European community and the Chinese community. So they joined this, <laughs> this club of similar outcasts. So they were all these mixed race couples uh, with Chinese men and Caucasian or white women. Originally they were called the Mix-Up Club, but then they realized they sounded like a swingers club. <laughs> so they changed the name to the M Club quite quickly after that. <laughs> and you know, it actually still exists to this day. Wow. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of mixed race kids in Hong Kong now, and I think the stigma is, is far, far less, which is, is necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And one part uh, I was also really interested in, in terms of Hong Kong people, obviously they speak Cantonese predominantly, and it's something that you said you didn't really have a, a great foundation in yourself. You had a better, you know, stronger foundation in Mandarin, but that you did take up calligraphy as well um, as a, a kind of practice. And I wondered if you could talk about not only learning Cantonese and you were talking about the kind of inherent differences between Cantonese and Mandarin and how that almost reflected kind of a cultural difference or, or seemed to liberate people in Hong Kong more the more that they spoke Cantonese. I wonder if you could share a little bit about what you learned about the Cantonese language, especially in contrast to Mandarin. Yeah, I mean, Cantonese is a really, it's a very difficult language to learn, actually. There are lots of tones and people don't even necessarily agree how many tones there are. And it's quite casual in a way, but also there are a lot of rules. <laughs> so it's quite hard to learn. And it's really a, a, a big identity marker for Hong Kongers. It's really something that sets them out from northerners is the language that they, they speak. And, you know, I think part of that separate identity is, is rooted in even the way the language sounds. You know, it's it's a super sweary language, which I love. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's uh, people swear an awful lot. And, you know, I realized this when I was even reading the audiobook of my book and there was like six swear words, quite bad swear words, in the first three pages, I think. <laughs> and, um, but you know, that's very much in the ca character of Hong Kong. It's a very kind of emotional language as well. There's a lot of plosives, there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of exclamations. It's very exclamatory, declamatory language. And it's quite different from Mandarin, which can be quite kind of regimented and quite kind of, you know, formulaic. Cantonese isn't like that. Uh, and Cantonese speakers will actually even argue that uh, classical Chinese is more similar to Cantonese than it is to Mandarin. I mean, Mandarin was really kind of what we think of as standard Mandarin now is really kind of invented as a language to unify the whole of China. So there, there is an argument that uh, classical Chinese is, is in some ways closer to Cantonese and it does use sort of certain participles and ancient characters that, that are no longer used in Mandarin. It's a different writing 
Mandarin uses simplified characters and Cantonese uses traditional characters, which are far more complicated and difficult to write. So yeah, it's quite a difficult language to learn. <laughs> I think I've only really started to learn Mandarin and even I found that difficult. So I can't really imagine trying Cantonese, but it does sound like a wonderful language. And I love that you've got all the characters there and then the English translation in the book, because as you say, it seems to kind of lend itself to protest language in a way. You know, you saying it's explicit, it's declamatory, it's something that really seems like it's got a lot of force behind it, and it's also very clever. Absolutely. And when there were protests in 2019, it was really interesting. One of the things that protesters did was they invented new characters, new Chinese written words. Um, and sometimes it was sort of melding two words. So there was one which was something black police, which kind of means triad, which is, you know, sort of criminal police, this kind of thing, but other words as well. And, you know, that was interesting because that kind of act of linguistic innovation is something that would not happen on, on mainland China, where language is so regimented, it's controlled in a way. Cantonese isn't like that. And language is throughout this entire book, especially because of one of the main characters in the book, the King of Kowloon. And I was really interested, given my background in art history, because I was not aware of him. I am aware of, you know, the Western early graffiti artists and street artists, but he really is the original, isn't he? I mean, I think he is. You know, people, I think he used Banksy before there was Banksy, Keith Haring before there was Keith Haring. It's just that he didn't get famous in the same way. Although, you know, now his work is quite valuable. Um, there was a scooter painted with his calligraphy that sold for a quarter of a million US dollars. So, you know, his work is worth quite a lot of money, but I don't think he has that same sort of international recognition. And one of the reasons is because he writes in Chinese. He writes Chinese characters, and I think it's, it's harder for Westerners or non-Chinese speakers to appreciate and understand that and to understand the significance. And, you know, actually his writing is pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he only had two years of school and his writing is really ugly. It's lopsided, it's wonky, it's not beautiful and harmonious and balanced in the way that calligraphy is supposed to be. But, you know, to Western eyes, Chinese characters you know, maybe it's harder to see that Chinese character, you know, it just looks like gibberish. And I think to a lot of, even to local people, a lot of his writing looked like gibberish because it was quite uh, hard to understand. So he was an old disabled trash sorter who um, many people thought was completely mad, mentally incompetent, and he believed that the peninsula of Kowloon, which is opposite Hong Kong, um, had been stolen from its fa his family when it was given to the British after the Second Opium War. And so he spent 50 years writing on the land that he believed was his, sort of claiming his dominion. And he would write his family tree, sort of 21 generations of names, and he would sometimes write the places that they'd lost. And he would often write really sweary things like fuck the queen in the ass. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of Hong Kong people didn't like it either because it looked quite crazy. It was really rude and sweary. 
And, you know, it, w- it was not necessarily beautiful to look at. Yeah. Well, I did like that there was a photograph, at least in the book, of him with his, you know, calligraphy. And he just looked, I mean, I loved his smile. He seemed to have a real spirit and vibrancy to him, like an inner vibrancy. He was just, to me, such an interesting character and on so many different levels. You know, I think I was interested in him because the themes that he was writing about were the themes of territory and sovereignty and dispossession and loss, which are right central, absolutely central to Hong Kong's political crisis. But he was talking about them generations before anybody else, so long before everyone Mm -hmm. else that people thought he was crazy. Um, So that interested me. You know, I grew up with his words. And to me, it was a part of Hong Kong. They were words that changed the way that our city looked. And they would appear and disappear because he would write in certain places. He had certain places that he particularly liked. You know, there was a certain flyover that he saw of as almost like a a shrine or a holy site. And he kept going back to the same place because the government would wash away his work or they would paint over it. And he would just keep returning to the same places over and over again. So there was that kind of real element of surprise that he was, you know, his work would be there, then it'd be gone, then it'd pop up on another wall. And then, you know, so it was kind of everywhere. It was really a part of the city, but it was also drawing your attention to those bits of street furniture that you never notice because he was very exacting in the sites that he chose to paint on he just chose these bits of the city that you wouldn't normally notice so you know the flyovers the electricity boxes post boxes lamp posts you know everything that he chose to paint on were sites owned by the government (laughs) he didn't paint on private property at all so he was you know very exacting in that And so, you know, that interested me. But then the significance that other people attached to him was also very fascinating to me. You know, he became this cultural icon. Poets wrote poems to him. You know, rap singers sang about him, as did lounge singers, jazz singers. Artists did tribute work to him. You know, his work was on fashion collections, both sort of haute couture, these amazingly beautiful collections, but also on sort of Duna covers and slippers and underwear, um, whiskey bottles, sneakers. It, it was everywhere. And it was something that really kind of um, was used as a shorthand for Hong Kong. So he sort of became a real symbol of Hong Kong. And like a meme, you know, I think he had all kinds of different significance depending on what kind of what point in time you looked at him. So that was another reason why I was so interested in him. So I started by tracking down all the people that knew him to talk to them and just find out a little bit more about this man. And then when I did that, I realized only really afterwards that he had kind of led me to some of the most interesting of Hong Kong's thinkers. And, you know, a lot of them were people who became intensely politically sensitive after the protests. But because I've been talking to them for such a long time, I didn't realise until afterwards that the sort of people who were interested in him were the people who were already thinking about these issues. So, you know, he was almost like my guide in writing this book. Yeah, it really does uh, shine through because he's really weaved throughout the book in a very, you know, relevant way. 
I wanted to go to the joint declaration and then move a little bit ahead to some of the protests. So I was really interested in the archival research and, you know, the, the books that you had found that seemed to have been untouched almost around what was going on behind the scenes in terms of this joint declaration agreement between China and Britain and the negotiations, obviously, in terms of um, Britain handing back Hong Kong to China and um, the one country, two systems agreement. And I wonder if you could take us through some of the things that you thought were particularly interesting and revealing about what happened, especially the lack of agency that Hong Kongers had during that time. Yeah, absolutely. So, so there was this agreement called the Joint Declaration that was negotiated between China and Britain. And that was the agreement that returned Hong Kong to China in 1997. But it was negotiated in 19, between 1982 to 1984. And Hong Kongers played no part in that process. They weren't present at the negotiations. They had no seat at the table. There was no vote, no referendum. Uh, no way for Hong Kongers really to, you know, there was no mechanism by which they could approve the agreement. And I had always been interested in how that had happened. Um, but most of the main players have already died. You know, I guess, again, it's part of that erasure of Hong Kong voices from Hong Kong's own history. The fact that Hong Kong's fate was really settled without any Hong Kong as being part of it. So I was trying to think about how to write about that. And then I discovered this archive of interviews that um, was being held at a library in Oxford. And these were interviews done by a Hong Kong political scientist, Steve Zhang, in um, the 1980s and 90s. And he had interviewed, you know, dozens of really important figures, you know, some governors, some senior colonial civil servants, and then this group of people called the unofficials. And the agreement was that all of these interviews would be held for 30 years from the last incident described before they could be released. And this was because all of these people had signed the Official Secrets Act, so they weren't allowed to speak about, you know, these issues. And so by the time that the interviews were released, many of these people had died without ever really having spoken publicly. Actually, some of the interviews were almost sort of released by mistake because I, I had been really interested in them. So, I, But you had to go to Oxford to, to read them in the reading room. <laughs> and um, I've been a couple of times and it was really sort of logistically quite hard when you live in Australia having to go to Oxford and read the documents in a particular space. And I've been a couple of times and then I went to have lunch with Steve and I showed him the list of interviews. And he had done them such a long time ago, he could hardly remember anything about them. But he said, I don't think that's right. No, I'm sure I interviewed some other people too. And he named a couple of names. So I went back to Oxford and I said to them, I, you know, I don't think this list is complete. Can you go away and look? And they came back and they just kept adding to the list. And saying, oh, no, we did find some more. Oh, you yeah, know, we're just putting them on the shelves now. So <laughs> that's, wow. that's why I'm quite, I'm quite confident that although some of them have been written about, some of them hadn't until yeah. that time. And there were these really extraordinary interviews because these people had been unable to speak in their lifetime. So they'd really unburden themselves to Steve and they'd really, you know, 
spoken so emotionally and I hadn't expected that. You know, some of these people were men that I remembered from my childhood in Hong Kong and they were always kind of very tight-lipped and very kind of honorable and always doing the right thing and saying the right thing. And then when you read these interviews, you realize that they were in such turmoil and anguish because they had been party to all this stuff that was happening behind the scenes that they hadn't been able to share. And they'd been really unhappy with the joint declaration, but they'd had to sort of publicly fall in line and stand behind it and even sort of sell it to the population, even though they, they themselves were not happy with it. And through these interviews, you could see how they'd really fought the British. They'd want, wanted many more safeguards to protect Hong Kong. They had thought that the British didn't understand how to negotiate. Uh, when they went to London to see Margaret Thatcher, you know, she was just astonishingly racist. She talked about the Chinese leaders as savages. And they themselves had been subject to an extraordinary amount of racism from uh, British MPs. And it was a whole kind of other story than the official narrative. So, you know, all the way through the book, what I've wanted to do is to restore Hong Kong voices to the historical record to just... Um, and this was one episode where I really felt that um, the Hong Kong voice was had been missing. And, you know, the really tragic thing about it is the things that they were worried about, the things that they warned about, the things they even went to the Chinese leader, Deng Xiaoping, to ask for help with. These are all the things that have now happened to Hong Kong. So, you know, the sort of counter question is if Britain had listened to them how different would Hong Kong be now? You know, because they had wanted safeguards to ensure that China followed the agreement that it signed up to. And the British had kind of quite airily said, oh no, China wouldn't want to lose face. China wouldn't, wouldn't want to lose face in front of the international community. But in fact, you know, from what we've seen in the last couple of years, China's bulldozed through the joint declaration. It just decided that the joint declaration was no longer valid and sort of discarded it. And because there were no safeguards, there was no monitoring body, there was no sort of redress for violations, there was nothing that, that anyone could do. So it's in, in you know, looking back now, it, it's, you know, it was actually quite painful to see how accurate their warnings were. And also, as part of that story, you interviewed Christopher Patton, who's now a baron, at the University of Melbourne when he was visiting. And I was interested as well in, in that question you asked him where you were asking if more attention had been paid to the Hong Kong advisors like S.Y. Chung, would it have made a difference to the outcome? And he said, I think it might have done actually. Whenever anybody behaved as though Hong Kong should be more central to the issues or the interests of Hong Kong should be addressed more openly, the Percy Craddocks and so on moved in very rapidly to squash the idea. So I guess it's kind of heartbreaking looking back to think that there's almost a sliding doors moment where something could have made a significant difference to our current situation, you know, in the last 10 years or so. Yeah, it really is. It, and I was really interested that he gave that answer because, you know, Chris Patton was Hong Kong's last governor. He was the person who literally handed Hong Kong back to China and um, you know, he was unusual as a governor because he was, he's a politician, not a civil servant. But I actually wasn't 
really expecting him to say that. I thought that he might defend the conduct of the British in some way, but he really didn't. He, he said, you know, he thought that it might have been different had someone listened to the warnings of the unofficials. But I think what came through so clearly was the agreement to hand Hong Kong back was really driven by political expediency. Both Britain and China wanted this sealed as quickly as possible, and they really weren't that concerned about Hong Kongers and what would happen to them. And now, you know, now Hong Kong is in this situation where China has, you know, discarded the joint declaration. Tens of thousands of Hong Kongers are leaving every month, in recent months, more and more. You know, 50,000 people left in the first two weeks of March alone. And it's really sad because what was one of the world's great cities is really being transformed before our eyes. But um, I guess for me, it was just important to try and restore those voices because I do think that absence of any Hong Kong voices and Hong Kong faces from Hong Kong history is such an omission, you know. Hong Kong's history has really been written for it by these successive sovereign powers. You know, I really wanted to try and look at Hong Kong's story from a Hong Kong perspective. And I think it's important to do that, even if it does raise these sort of really, really painful moments. Yeah, it does raise painful moments and it also moments um, of questioning, certainly yourself questioning your role as a journalist, but also as a Hong Konger and someone with a great fondness and clear allegiance with Hong Kong uh, and the people of Hong Kong, especially during the 2019 protests against the extradition bill, which was something we covered on the show a lot with Anthony Dapperin, who was over in Hong Kong and still is. And you open the book talking about the moments where you're with these guerrilla protesters on the top of buildings, painting these massive banners with calligraphy, you know, with clear protest sayings and mottos and, you know, thinking about your role. And, and then it comes up once more again and again when you're participating in the marches, then you become a journalist in the second march and, you know, you, you get targeted. So I wonder, could you talk about that identity, the, the, the kind of questioning of identity as a Hong Konger, but also as a journalist, and your role and, and how you experienced that 2019 protest movement, because it was a really interesting tension that you seem to have to grapple with. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, to be honest, I didn't really want to write about myself at all. <laughs> Originally, I wanted to write a really kind of stand back book where I didn't ever play a role, you know, traditional journalistic book, where I didn't really play a role in it. And it just became really obvious very early on that that wasn't going to be possible, that it was, you know, when a place has shaped you so much, you can't really remove <laughs> that place from you or yourself from that place, you know, to find that distance to do that. And then not only was it not possible, but I, I found that I didn't want to. You know, I think the traditional role of the journalist as the outsider, as someone who stands on the sidelines and writes these sort of dispassionate dispatches was quite problematic for me in Hong Kong, um, particularly because when I was there, 
in the protests, watching what was happening, and then to read about the coverage the next day, I often found I couldn't recognize the scenes that I'd been seeing because, you know, those people who were doing that kind of dispassionate standback journalism would go to the government sources and they would quote police saying there were riots and, you know, all this kind of thing. And, you know, if you'd been on the streets, you would not have seen riots. You would have seen, you know, policemen assaulting people, but that wasn't written about. And so I really had difficulties with doing that. And I think, you know, they're, they're the same difficulties. I think in a way, Ukraine has slightly shifted the equation for journalists because Russia's behavior has been so uh, sort of obviously in violation of all the ethical tenets that it's become more acceptable. And there might also be a race element in it, I'm sorry to say, but I do think it's true um, because there are more Ukrainians who speak really good English and, you know, more access to Ukrainian spokespeople and, and stuff like that. But I think it's become more acceptable for journalists to kind of take a, a position since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But I just found that all throughout the protests, I was really grappling with how to write about them. You know, did I have to choose between being a journalist and being a Hong Konger? Or was there a way that I could write about them as both a Hong Konger and a journalist? So that whole starting scene where I, I had originally gone to interview the sign painters and I was just, you know, I interviewed them, I was watching them paint their signs, I was behaving completely journalistically <laughs> and then I, I suddenly thought I really want to join in, I really want to, you know, paint a protest sign. I went also because of the King and Kelly and I wanted to know what it felt like but I also wanted to be part of that moment and I knew it wasn't particularly journalistic of me to do that but I also knew that I was going to do that and so I did and yeah I, I think it was a tension that I really had to navigate and in the end I decided that I would just try and be really honest about it and just really write honestly about the decisions that I'd made and why I had taken them. I actually didn't even really want to write about that whole <laughs> uh, that whole episode on the rooftop to begin with. I, I thought maybe I could just not put it in because it's not very journalistic, but then I, you know, that would have been dishonest of me. So I, in the end, I included it. Well, it's a great way of highlighting just how there are, it's not a very simple situation for many people in Hong Kong. And you pointed out there kind of became increasing divisions between certain parts of Hong Kong, between the younger and the older and other, you know, groups. I was also kind of really interested in your descriptions of, you know, the thing, the violence that you saw, but also that you experienced because you were wearing, you know, a press vest that should have given you protection, but instead you were tear gassed pepper sprayed and had a gun pointed at you. You also described the fact that many people were left with PTSD and were very unwell from some of the, the tear gas exposures. Is it becoming harder and harder to be a journalist in those kind of situations where you, you're not really expecting that escalation of violence, looking at past protest movements in Hong Kong, like you pointed out there? Yeah, I mean, it was honestly very terrifying being a journalist on the streets in those circumstances. And one of the reasons why it was 
scary was the kind of accepted procedures just didn't apply. You know, even in wartime, journalists are not supposed to be targeted. If you wear, you know, if you wear a helmet marking you out as press and a, a press vest, soldiers or police are not supposed to target journalists, but that was not happening in Hong Kong. And, you know, many members of the press ended up actually taking off their press vests and markings because they thought that it was safer. They thought they were actually being targeted. So there was that. And I, I would say also that I, all those things happened to me, but I think I got off relatively lightly compared to many other journalists. I mean, I knew journalists who were detained. I had a friend who um, spent a month in bed because they had just inhaled so much tear gas that they had all kinds of nerve damage. You know, I have, I have friends who still have PTSD from the things that they saw. Um, and, you know, I think for TV journalists, it was particularly horrifying because they were always at the front lines. They were always being tear gassed and they were always having to shoot these real scenes of violence. I mean, you know, I was not always on the front line and I was not always there. But, you know, I did get tear gas many times, probably. Um, I couldn't even count how many, you know. I started, I, I upgraded my mask until I had a full face respirator. But, you know, you still do feel the effects of tear gas. And I was pepper sprayed. And as you say, there was one incident where I was standing with a group of journalists and a policeman pulled his gun first at a woman, a female journalist standing next to me, and then he really slowly moved it round and pointed it at each of us in turn. And it was really terrifying. I, You know, I was so scared that I just didn't even really know what I was doing. Um, and I, I think, you know, under those circumstances, there were journalists and there were bloggers and live streamers who were going out day after day, week after week, just to document what was happening and the amount of courage that's required to do that is astonishing especially when there is actually a sort of physical price to pay yeah yeah and just finally louisa to close out this conversation i was really interested in something that you had mentioned in a previous interview about this burden of memory that seemed to have been placed on Hong Kongers, especially around things like Tiananmen, where, you know, you would have that yearly vigil, but now you don't. And that I think you mentioned, you know, that burden is now being passed on to others outside of Hong Kong because of the situation. And, you know, this book is really an act of remembering, but also inserting, as you say, Hong Kong voices back into history where they belong in a, in a prominent position. Um, but I wondered if you could just expand on that thought and where you think it's going in terms of where that burden of memory does lie. Well, I mean, I think that burden of memory is moving as Hong Kong populations move, you know, as people leave Hong Kong and move around the world, they're taking that burden with them. And I mean, we see it here in Melbourne where there's a growing population of Hong Kongers, you know, in the UK as well, because of these new paths to permanent residency that have been offered, actually both in Australia and the UK after the national security law was passed, we're seeing these new communities coalescing. And um, just at the beginning of April, 
a, a number of community groups across Australia organized the showing of this film called Revolution of Our Times, which is a film that's banned in Hong Kong. And they showed it in cinemas um, across Australia. And I actually, I actually saw it in South Yarra. And it was really an interesting moment because the film had been banned in Hong Kong to go and see it in itself is, you know, it's an act of defiance. And I wondered how many Hong Kongers would go, given that when they put the tickets up for sale, so many people tried to buy them, the website crashed. <laughs> um, and then almost 7,000 people bought tickets in a single weekend. And when wow. they put the film on, yeah, it's a two and a half hour film, it's incredibly intense, very shocking, very sad. Everyone was crying, but when they finished it at, at the end, everyone was kind of sitting in their chairs, stunned. And then a man in front of me shouted, um, actually the words on the front of my book, Hong Kongers, and then somebody else shouted the protest response, which is which means sort of go or add oil or, you know, yay or something like that. And, you know, this happened all across Australia. My friend saw it in Sydney and there the whole cinema was singing Glory to Hong Kong, which is uh, an anthem that's banned in Hong Kong now. What's really interesting is that filmmaker Kiwi Chow, he yesterday, he released this video for Hong Kongers in Australia. And he said, the national security legislation is really designed to instill fear in people. And what I want is for this film to be a beginning that Hong Kongers outside Hong Kong can join together and face this fear head on together and overcome it together. And I think we saw the beginnings of that um, in that cinema in South Yarra the other day. That's really beautiful and, yeah, amazing. Thank you so much, Louisa, for sharing so many wonderful stories with us. And I hope people can check out your book, uh, which is called Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. Thank you, Louisa Lim, for joining us. And thank you so much for having me, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.